Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, let's go. Romans chapter 2 is where we left off, where we find ourselves as we are studying the one of the greatest letters ever written, certainly, if not the greatest letter ever written, Romans, and uh, we find ourselves in chapter 2. In just a moment, I'm going to just begin reading. We're going to cover verses 1 through 16, and we're just going to handle it piecemeal as we walk our way through it. But maybe um, you have heard this objection as you're finding Romans 2, and again, there's a Bible available for you in the chair rack in front of you. We want you to use a Bible, have it open in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, please use the one in front of you. Keep that Bible. It's our gift to you if you don't have a Bible. But maybe, certainly I think virtually everybody in this room has either had this objection or they've heard this objection about Christians and churches. Well, I I don't want to go to a church because it's just full of hypocrites, right? Well, actually, I think that's true. We're all hypocrites to some degree or another. That's, that's the clear witness of the Bible. But here's the really good news, and here's, I think, the point of Romans 2, verses 1 through 16, and it is that the gospel is for hypocrites too. At the end of Romans 1 that we worked through, it took us six weeks, by the way, uh, and I think we're going to be a little quicker through Romans 2, just probably two weeks in Romans 2. At the end of Romans 1, where there was this clear indictment, primarily as Paul is is aiming at the Gentile world that has rejected God and suppressed the truth and has given themselves over to all sorts of wickedness, it's as if there's somebody in the audience as Paul is writing this letter, and at the end of Romans 1, Paul can hear them in the back say, yeah, Amen. And Paul says, oh, 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 really now? And in Romans chapter 2, he takes aim at the religious, moralist heart. And then later on in the chapter, at the Jews who think that they are right with God because they have the law. So with that, I'm going to begin, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to just work our way through Romans 2. Here's the thing about today. I think actually Romans 2, verses 1 through 16, is actually pretty clear. I think it won't be much of a stretch for us to understand the point that the Holy Spirit is making through Paul. The challenge is going to be that God in his grace would help us apply these truths. And for that, friends, we are just completely dependent on the Holy Spirit. We need him to flow through this room in the dusty temple of our hearts and to blow afresh for him to go far beyond my ability to preach or teach or articulate anything for him to go far beyond our ability to think about our own lives and for the mighty rushing wind of God to blow into our hearts and do things and speak things and show us things about ourselves in the light of the perfect law of liberty that go far beyond human logic and reason. So we, we, we need the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do. Let's pray now. 
for him to do that before we read. Father, as we have just sung, we need you to come stir our affections for you. There are people from all across the spectrum in this room. People that know you well and have served you for many years. People that think that they know you, but they're self-deceived and they don't truly know Jesus. Their hearts are still cold and hard. People in this room who are very well aware of how far they are from you. And in some kind providence, you have us all here now on this morning, the first Sunday of March in 2017. This day was etched in your providence before time began. You knew the people and the situations and the nooks and crannies of our heart and all the things that we are falsely trusting in and the things that we are anxious about and the things that have devastated our lives and the things that are causing us great joy. You, you know all of those things. And, and you caused a man to write this letter and this portion of the letter to be read to us, to be explained, to be opened up, to be stared at by your people on this day. Lord, do what only you can do. We need the gospel afresh this morning. And so blow through this room, through our hearts, like a mighty rushing wind, and change us and transform us and save those of us who don't know you and humble us that do and deepen our love for the good news of the gospel and make us fall in love afresh with the work of your son and the grace of the gospel and the beauty of Christ. I pray that you do all these things for your glory and our joy and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans 2 verse 1, Paul starts this way and we'll, we'll read the first five verses and then stop. Paul says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourselves because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. So he's saying, you that have just gotten done hearing what we've been talking about at the end of Romans 1, about these people that have given themselves over to all manner of wickedness and sin, he says, wait a minute, religious person. Although you may not be involved in those specific sins, we are all guilty before God in some way. Verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Well, just as a a kind of a heading for these five verses... I think we can look at these five verses and say that the point, I think, of it is that no one escapes God's judgment. And so we're just going to have a little outline that we'll work through. And the first is that no one escapes God's judgment. 
Now, the context really of this whole chapter is Paul, after we've gone through Romans 1, where he was primarily talking to Gentiles, now he's training his attention on religious people and Jewish people who think that they are right with God because they have this law. And, and the point is, is not that we would just know the context and say, okay, Paul is contrasting the irreligious and the religious, but that we wouldn't just let it sort of hang out there, but that we would apply it to ourselves. And so... The application for us is that well, what are the reasons that we might be prone to think that God will in some way give us a pass as compared to others? And, and I think that we can sort of read ourselves in or apply this text to ourselves as this religious person, most of us in this room, certainly not all of us, but most of us in this room probably have grown up in a relatively religious culture, maybe even a Christian background in the buckle of the Bible belt in the deep south, and we, like the person, the people that Paul is, is taking aim at here in verses 1 through 5, are prone to think that we are basically okay with God because we are not like those other filthy people out there. What are some of the things that sometimes maybe we tell ourselves, even subconsciously? Sometimes, and I've even said this myself, Paul, as he was exhorting us in between songs to preach the gospel to ourselves. Well, sometimes we, we preach a false gospel to ourselves, don't we? And I've said these things, I think, even subconsciously when I was maybe doing something that I knew was clearly outside of God's bounds. I would say something like, well, God knows my heart. Have you ever said that to yourself or have you ever heard somebody tell you that? And that's usually just kind of spiritual subconscious code language for, you know, I'm going to basically do this, and I'm hoping that because of some sort of karma rule in the universe, that it'll also sh shake out for me in the, in the end, and I'll basically be okay, because God will look at all of humanity, and he will judge them according to what's in the Bible, but he'll look at me, and he'll say, you know, Brad, you've been a pretty good guy. Isn't that sort of just folly? But isn't that the natural default of our heart, and that's that's what Paul is saying here. Anything that we say, think about this sentence. I'm okay because blank. I treat people well. I come from a good family. I'm basically a decent guy. I, I come three out of four Sundays. I, I give. I, I try my best. I'm okay with God because of blank. Anything that we fill in in that blank other than the complete unmerited grace of God is like this religious person in verses 1 through 5. And the point that Paul is making is that no one, the sinner, the obvious sinner of Romans 1 and the religious moralist of Romans 2, stand on level ground. Remember I told you last week that um, we were going to have this assault on humanity for the next couple chapters. We're halfway through Romans 2. It's going to continue next week, and then it's going to continue into chapter 3. And we'll finally, Lord willing, I can't wait for this Sunday, we'll be able to come up for air when we get to verse 21 of Romans 3. But it's as if Paul and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit through Paul, are pressing on us, and he is painting the bleak picture of humanity before we get to the stunning news of the gospel. All of us stand in need of God's grace. All of us, none of us escape God's judgment. And then there's this verse four before we move on that I think is just so, so important. 
He says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? What is Paul's point here? His point is he's speaking to the religious person who is delaying getting serious with God because they think that they're kind of okay with God and they think that they're going to have an opportunity to eventually get serious with God. And the fact that God has delayed his wrath on them in that moment, they're taking as a kind of pass. But Paul is saying that God really is on that day going to give you over to your hard heart. I've said this to myself as a young man in my folly and error. And I've certainly heard Young guys, with this line of reasoning that, you know, once I'm going to have a little bit of fun, I'm going to do what I want to do, and then I'm going to get serious with God someday. The point that Paul is making here, though, is that to presume on God's kindness is folly. Verse 5, he says, no, don't assume that on that day your heart's going to be soft. Your heart may be hard. You may be at a point in your life where you cannot repent. But God in his kindness is is giving us mercy, not because God is not paying attention or doesn't care, but because of his kindness and his love and his patience. He is wooing us, pleading with us to turn to him. A beautiful doctrine that I think is a very true doctrine of the Reformation, irresistible grace. And I think this is, is a, a picture, a clear picture in the Bible. And sometimes people don't understand what that means. They think that where we are saved by irresistible grace as if God conks us over the head, knocks us out. We're running away from God and he just draws us to him sort of unwillingly. His grace is irresistible. I don't think that's a right picture of grace. God's grace is irresistible. Clearly all humanity resists God's grace all the time. But when God intends and decides to save a person in eternity past, he decides to move on their life in such a way that he woos them with kindness and love. He woos them and he draws them to himself through kindness so that his grace isn't a sort of conking on the head, but as we see the beauty and the wooing of the Holy Spirit in our life, our hearts are melted from hardness so that we would come, so that God's beauty would be so so much better than anything else in this world that we, we would find it just irresistible. And God says this is, through Paul, he says this is what, this is how he saves a person. He gives him this gift of repentance. And this brings up this idea of just what does true repentance look like? Well, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians verse 7 that there's two types of repentance. A worldly repentance that leads to death and a true repentance that leads to life. And, and isn't it kind of hard to discern which is which? You know, even, even, even in our own hearts, we're wondering, am I truly just sorry for this sin because I'm caught or I'm about to be discovered or, you know, consequences are bad for me? Or has God truly wrought a change in my life? And ultimately, God gives us means by which we can help to discover these things. One of the things that he gives us is each other. He gives us a church family so that we can be clear about our own lives as to whether or not our repentance is truly genuine. He puts us in a family so that we look at one another 
so that we can discern one another's lives and validate and give one another confidence whether or not we are truly taking God's side against our sin or not. I think that's one of the reasons why I think being part of a, a local church is so important. In fact, tonight at our one another meeting, we're going to, by God's grace, we're going to add 35 members to this church. And we think that church membership is really, really important here, not just because we're trying to add numbers to our church, but because we, when we believe as the Bible calls us to live in a way together in a committed relationship, which we think is, is basically church membership, where we know one another, is that we now take on responsibility for one another. And as we bring these people into this church, and we have this sort of formalized relationship with one another, we are saying to one another, we are now responsible for you, and you are responsible for us, and we have this kind of relationship with one another that is part of God's means to help us fight hypocrisy. In fact, we're saying when we are part of a local church, hey, come join the... In fact, people might say, I don't want to go to that church because it's full of hypocrites. Yes, come join the merry band of hypocrites. And this merry band of hypocrites is fighting hypocrisy by being honest about their hypocrisy and graciously helping one another be aware of the ways in which we are hypocritical. That's the word I was looking for. Do you see that? And so there's a, there's a kind of posture there. It's not a, a judgmentalism as if, no, you, you, brother, you can't do this. It's a, it's a realizing and humility that we all need to take God's side against sin and we're going to do it together and we're going to love one another and we're going to with boldness but tears in our eyes and humility in our hearts point out areas in one another's life where we might be this man in verses 1 through 5 who is, is, is lost in his self-deception. Oh, friends, come on, let's not be consumer Bible Belt Christians who dip in and out of church occasionally, hear a good little message to give you three little principles to have a better Thursday. Friends, that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is a group of people who are aware of their frailty and their weakness and aware of the fact that the Hypocrisy that dwells in every human heart wants to rear its head and God puts us together so that we might be able to help one another fight this hypocrisy. And together we would be wooed by the irresistible, beautiful, Christ-saturated, Holy Spirit-drawing grace of God. He continues. Let's look at verse 6. He says, Then he will render to each one According to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So if we were to head, give a heading to this paragraph here, verses 6 through 11, I think we could just say simply that all will be judged by their works. Now we've got to do a little work there, because if you've been around Crosspoint for long enough, you know that we center on the gospel 
every Sunday. In fact, we make a big deal about the gospel. And the good news of the gospel is that we ultimately are not made right with God by our works, but we are made right with God by Jesus' work, by his perfect work. And friends, this is the gospel. Hear me clearly. If you've kind of been bored up to this point, you've been tuned out, if you hear nothing else today, hear this. This is the point of the Bible. This is the good news. This is the most important news in the universe. And it is this, that all of us, all of us by nature, whether we are the the filthy sinners of Romans 1, or whether we are the religious moralists of Romans 2, all of us are separated from God by our sin. We are by nature, we inherit our sin nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve, and we are by nature separated from God. There's no good person. There's no, we are all separated from God. The Bible says later on in Romans 8, when we get there in a while, it says that, Sin has led to death, and we are all in death, and that we cannot obey God rightly. We can do nothing in and of ourselves to please God. And the good news of the gospel is that God does not leave us in that place, but he sends Jesus, God in the flesh, fully God, yet fully man, to live the perfect life where all of us have disobeyed God. Jesus comes as the God-man, the mediator between God and men. He represents God perfectly to us, and he represents us perfectly to God. And he takes our place. And now, because Jesus is not just a perfect man, but he is the eternally, infinitely holy Son of God, he has enough righteousness to bear the wrath of the Father. And he extinguishes it. He removes it. He cancels it. That's why in Romans 8 it can say that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus, the God-man, the Son of God, fully man, fully God, died on the cross to bear the punishment of God the Father and remove it and extinguish it and satisfy it. But then, it doesn't just stop there. He rises in victory over death in the grave. And now, not just because he's perfect and died for our sins, but because he was perfectly obedient and fully righteous, gives us his righteousness. It's now given to us. And so we stand before God, not with our own works, but because we are trusting in the works, the imputed works of Christ, whose we stand in and are covered by on that day when we stand before God. Friends, that, that's, that's the gospel. In just a moment, if you're a Christian, as is our custom on the first Sunday of every month, we're going to come to this table and we're going to take this little piece of bread and this little cup of juice, which is a picture of what I just said, that Jesus' body was broken, was crushed for our sins. He bore our sins, and the cup is his blood that cleanses us. His righteousness is imputed to us, and we are going to come to this table and remember that very truth, the most important truth of all, that we are saved, made right with God, not by our own works, but by Jesus' work. And that doesn't apply to everybody, but it applies only to those that he has made alive, who he's given the gift of faith and repentance to, so that they then put their hope and trust in Jesus and not in themselves. Friends, that's the gospel. It's the gospel of justification by grace alone, faith alone, through Christ alone. But here Paul says that he will render to each one according to his works. So has Paul 
Does he have a temporary leave of his mind? Does he, does he not understand that he might be contradicting himself? Come on, let's give Paul a little bit more credit than that. He's not saying that we are saved by our works, but he's saying that the fruit of the Christian life matters. He's saying that we will all stand before God someday, and what we do after we have been brought back to life by the grace of God matters. I think this is exactly what James is talking about in James chapter 2. So last Wednesday night, we started our study of James, and I went through chapter 1, James chapter 1, which is really clear, I think. Uh, not me, I don't think I was particularly, but the James chapter 1 is clear. And James chapter 2 is one of like the hardest chapters in the Bible, so Robert's going to teach this Wednesday. <laughs> and Martin Luther, who is the great reformer of the 1500s, 500 years ago in 1517, he discovered the gospel afresh by reading Romans. Up to that point, he was a Catholic monk, thinking wrongly that he was saved by his works, what he could do, what he could give. Uh, and this German monk, Tetzel, came through Germany at the time when Luther was studying Romans. And he was raising money to build the basilica, the Catholic church in Rome. And he was selling indulgences, which was a doctrine of the Catholic church at the time, that you could buy, because they had this faulty doctrine called purgatory, where the Catholic church believed, I think to some degree still believes, that if a person dies and they're not truly trusting in Jesus, they go into this middle ground called purgatory. Okay? By the way, this is all not true. This is false. Okay? And that then their living relatives can, by their prayers or by their gifts, purchase their souls from purgatory and release them from purgatory so that they kind of get to, you know, they get to go to heaven. And so Tetzel, this German, uh, uh, this German kind of salesman of indulgences for the Catholic Church is traveling around Germany at the time, and he came up with this little jingle. And he said, when copper, meaning a little coin that's given by somebody, when your copper in the bowl doth ring, a soul from purgatory springs. <laughs> in other words, it's, it's, it's the prosperity gospel, you know, in the 1500s. Give, and God will, you know, save your grandpa who's trapped in purgatory. That's not the gospel, by the way. You know that, right? And it caused Martin Luther to go ballistic. Because at that time, he had been reading Romans. And he realized, no, we are not made right with God by our works, but by the grace of God alone. And so he typed up 95 statements that he thought refuted everything that the church was teaching at that time. He nailed it to the chapel door in Wittenberg, and this crazy little thing called the Protestant Reformation happened. Hashtag boom. <laughs> the point is, is that Luther saw the glory of the free grace of God so clearly in Romans that we're saved not by our works, but by the grace of God. Nothing we do, but only what God has done through the atoning work of his son. That when he got to James, that says 
that we, he says, show me. In fact, I'll read James chapter 2. We got we to settle down on this. We got to see this. James chapter 2, James says this. He says, what good is it, verse 14, James 2. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things they need, needed for the body, what good is that? Verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And Luther read that. Remember, Romans is still on his mind. And he thought, wait a minute, James is wrong. And he even called James the epistle of straw and wanted James at some point in his life, he wanted it removed from the Bible. Well, Luther was wrongly seeing. He was not understanding what James is saying. And what I think James is saying is the same thing that Paul is saying. He's not saying that we are saved by our works. But what he's saying is, is that our works, our obedience to God, the spiritual fruit is a necessary kind of evidence of the genuineness of true faith. Do you see that? So we're not saved by our fruit but the fruit is evidence of the genuineness of the root of faith. And Paul is saying here that God will render, and by the way, I, I'll leave Robert to explain that even better on this Wednesday night, so come. So your work is cut out for you, brother. Paul is saying here that Christians will be judged, not in the sense of whether or not they will be with the Lord forever, but there will be this rendering for how we actually live. Friends, do you see how this is combating nominal Christianity? People that say that they're right with God merely because they get a bulletin from First Baptist, Second Methodist, or Third Presbyterian, or because their daddy was a deacon, or their grandma played the piano. Friends, we're not right with God because merely we went to a VBS when we were seven and prayed a prayer after somebody. We're right with God because God has transformed our dead religious hearts, made them alive, and now our hearts are giving some evidence of the fact that we truly are alive. And Paul is saying here that we will stand before God someday and we will actually be judged. Not in the sense of whether or not we make it into heaven if we're Christians, but God will Make us give an account of everything that we have done. And here's the really good news, because for some of us that scares us. Like, oh my gosh. Well, Jonathan Edwards, one of the great theologians and, and, and pastors of, of the history of the church and maybe the greatest American theologian of all time, he was the pastor and preacher behind the first great awakening in the 1700s. He often thought about heaven and wrote about heaven and preached about heaven. And you probably only remember him for that one sermon you had to read in middle school where it was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, right? Where maybe you read and, and, and Edwards was, was, was meditating on the judgment of God that we we're all like spiders hanging by a web over the flames and that you're psyched out by Edwards and so you don't want anything to do with him. Well, actually, Edwards wrote a whole bunch of stuff about the glory of God and heaven. And Edwards said about this judgment that it is nothing that Christians should fear but rather, it will be another, another opportunity for us to revel in joy. Because here's the, here's the deal. Here's person A. Let's, let's call him Brad. And person B, let's call him Scotty. And, and Brad 
has not done as much good in this life as Scotty has. And we are standing before the Lord on that day. And Scotty gets more. He gets more gifts, more glory, more reward. But the good news is, is in heaven we will be free from anything that hinders us because of our sin nature here. And rather than being jealous of Scotty for his greater reward, Scotty's greater reward compared to mine will actually serve as another opportunity for deeper joy in me because I will be so happy for him. Do you see that? I mean, come on. How great will heaven be that we are actually happier for one another because of the great reward that Christians have? Praise God. I can't wait for that day when we are finally free from angst and comparison and jealousy and where you don't have to look at Instagram photos anymore and be jealous of everybody else's cute little kids in the church. (laughs) Thank you, Scotty. Paul's making the point that all of us are going to stand before the Lord someday. The underlying point being, will you be covered by Jesus or will you not be covered by Jesus? Let's keep going, verses 12 through 16. He says, for all have sinned without the law, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Again, I think that's hearkening back to the point we just made about James 2, that merely hearing the law does not make a person right with God. Merely growing up in the church, even if it is a gospel-preaching, Bible-believing, faithful church, does not make a person right. Nobody makes it to be with the Lord forever merely because they were associated with the law or the gospel, but because they have trusted in the gospel by God's sovereign grace and it's worked fruit in their lives. And the the juxtaposition that Paul is making here, you know that when he's speaking about those with the law, he's speaking about the, the Jewish people, the ethnic Israelites who God gave the law to through Moses compared to those without the law, meaning the Gentiles who didn't have this written law. But as we'll see here in just a few verses, and as we also saw in Genesis, I mean in Romans 1, have this external law that's written internally in our hearts. And so he's saying that both have sinned. He's leveling the playing field for the religious and the non-religious. Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law meaning the written law of God through Moses, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show, verse 15, that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What is Paul saying here? I think he's saying that God is fair. We might put this as our heading for this final section. That God is fair because all have the law in some sense. Whether it's been written down externally for us, or whether it's been written on our human 
heart, on our hearts internally by God. There's not a culture in this world that doesn't have some sense of right and wrong. And where does that come from? Paul is saying that that is God writing on writing his law on the human heart, giving that person a conscience that bears witness to them and their thoughts even kind of battle within, sometimes accusing, sometimes excusing themselves. The point is, is that nobody can stand before God and say, you weren't fair because I didn't know. You see, this is exactly the point that I think Paul was making at the end of Romans 1, that All creation has suppressed the truth, and all men are without excuse because we should be able to see just heavens and the glory of creation, and it should draw us to God. But we have all, in some way, rejected God. Let's look just real quickly before we conclude, again, just very briefly at a little dilemma that people have been tripped up by in verse 15 where it says that they show meaning these Gentiles are people that don't have the law, maybe irreligious people. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So some people have assumed that by the end of verse 15 there where he says that The Gentiles, the people that did not have the law but had the law written on their hearts, have these internal thoughts that either accuse them or even excuse them. And that little phrase there, even excuse them, has caused some to consider that maybe there are some people in the world who are excused or saved apart from Christ because their hearts are pure and their thoughts are pure and so their thoughts excuse them. A couple things that we would say to that. Number one is that if that's what that verse is saying, it would completely contradict the rest of the Bible, right? Paul will go on to say at the end of Romans or midway through Romans 3 as he concludes this argument that there is none that are righteous, no, not one, and every mouth is stopped before God. So even if that's what he is saying there as a possibility, he's saying that there's nobody that's like that. So either Paul is creating a hypothetical, a hypothetical category of a person who maybe possibly could be pure, but there's nobody like that. Or I think probably rightly Paul is saying that just the, the human heart is so conflicted that we just sometimes think that we're right with God, we excuse ourselves, Sometimes we accuse ourselves, and the point of verse 16 comes to sweep it all and say, look, there's coming a day when God will make it all clear, when all confusion will fade away, and God will judge the secrets of every man. The point being that all of us stand on level ground before God. Two implications very quickly before we come to the table. One, this should produce profound humility towards others. Most of us have probably grown up resembling the person in Romans 2 more than the person in Romans 1. Although that may not be universally the case in this room, most of us probably have. And when we read Romans 2, there should be nobody at the end of last Sunday 
when we read about the wickedness and the carnality of the sin described in Romans 1, there should be none of us who are standing over there kind of with Paul as he's writing this saying, yeah, uh-huh. We should all be humbled because we realize that we are in no better spot than the obvious sinner. This is what Jonathan Edwards, speaking of him again, as a young man in his early 20s, wrote 70 daily resolutions that he tried to live by. And number eight, I've read it before several times here, it's always grabbed me. He says, resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I. And as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. Imagine a church culture that takes the gospel and the humility that the gospel brings so clearly and fiercely that we link arms together and we help one another fight hypocrisy of Romans 2 and fight the sin of Romans 1. And when we see it in each other's lives, it doesn't cause us to back up from one another in judgment, but to run towards one another in healing grace so that we might be means of grace to one another so that we in our humility can say to one another, brother, sister, come on, let's take God's side against our sin. We all need Jesus. And then secondly and finally, this should produce profound dependence upon God for all people, every person. The sinner, the obvious sinner of Romans 1 and the moralistic sinner of Romans 2. In Luke 15, there's this really beautiful gospel parable where Jesus speaks about, it's called the story of the prodigal son. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. In Luke 15, there's this father who has these two sons, and this younger son, this rich father who has everything that his sons could want and eventually inherit. And this younger son squanders his inheritance, leaves his father's house, and goes and pursues false and counterfeit pleasures otherwise, otherwhere. Uh, he leaves and, and runs away in other places. And eventually finds himself in the bottom of the pig's pen, right? And God even intended to use him losing everything to bring him to his senses. And finally, this prodigal son who has run away comes back to the father. And the father sees him from afar, and he realizes that his son is repenting, turning, coming back, turning away from those things, and coming back to him. That's repentance. It's a turn. It's a change. And this younger son is a kind of picture of the Romans one sinner, the obvious guy who's blown it all. And he's coming back, and the father starts saying, hey, everybody, all my servants, get the best calf. Let's go. Let's strike up a party. Get the table out. Best spread. Let's go. We're going to have a party because my son, who is dead, is now alive. He's, he's repented. He's coming back. Let's, let's celebrate grace in his life. And there's the Romans 2 older brother who's in the background saying, Wait a minute now, are you, what now? That little punk who squandered everything gets grace? What about me? I've been notching VBS in my belt for 50. 
15 years. I'm an usher. I serve in children's ministry. I read my Bible every day with joy. I witness about Jesus. I tell others I've done it all. Aren't you pleased with me, Dad? <laughs> that older brother is a picture of the Romans 2 heart. And the point of Romans 2 is that all of us are starving sons that are in equal need of the Father's grace. And so when we come to this table, whether you have been running from God, like Romans 1, in an obvious way, or whether you've been gritting your teeth thinking that God owes you something, this table is for all. All. There's this beautiful old song that says the only fitness He requires of us is that we feel our need for Him. That we would be hungry for the grace that only God can provide by making people right with Him, not through their righteousness, but through the righteousness of His Son. By turning from our sin and putting our hope in Him. Friends, that's the gospel. That's the table. That's the need of every human. Let's do it this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to your table, may you humble us. May you weed out any religious spirit in our hearts. May you stamp out anything in us that thinks that you owe us something because we're, we're moral, quote-unquote, Christian people who grew up in the church. May you humble us afresh. May we see the beauty and the sufficiency of the finished work of your Son alone that has made us right with you. And may we all come to this table this morning, whether we have ran from you for decades and have trusted in you, or whether we have maybe trusted in our own righteousness, but by your grace now truly trust in you and not our works May we all come to this table as needy sons and daughters that can only be satisfied with the bread of heaven, Jesus. Humble us and produce more dependence in us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.